Welcome to episode 165 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony. And this is the podcast where brothers don't shake hands, brothers gotta hug. Oh, classic reference. Yes. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. I For some reason, I'm just excited this week to talk about Micah. Actually, that sounds horrible. Like as if this week in particular, the Bible was more enticing to me than normal. But I'm really stoked to find out about this passage again. But I'm also kind of curious. I always love to talk to you and get into affirmations and denials because I don't know if you feel this way about mine, but I never know where you're going to go with each of those things. That's probably because I never know where I'm going to go until about 30 <laughs> seconds before we start recording. So our little pre, well, pre-recording pre conference is me trying to figure out my affirmation and the denials. So like, here's a little peek maybe behind the curtain for people. I don't know. Do you have, sometimes you have an affirmation denial that strikes you earlier in the week. And you're like, okay, I got to remember that. I got to hold on to that. Yeah. Do you ever have that? Or all yours just kind of like we sit down and we're like, oh yeah, affirmations, denials. What's that going to be about? Usually it's a denial that strikes me earlier in the week. Cause it's like something that happens online or I read something that I like really hate. And I remember that it's actually affirmations are harder for me to come up with than denials, but usually right, well, it's one or the other. It's very the rare. It's very rare that I come into an episode like really knowing both of them. Well, let's flip it up then. Let's start with the denials. You want to kick it off? Sure. So, you know, the the, the Star Wars universe is this amazing, <laughs> robust... <laughs> Jesse just spit out some sort of malted beverage, I think. The, the, Star, Wars, the Star Wars universe is this amazing, robust, uh, like, story universe... And uh, I don't know if you know this, because it seems like you all of a sudden are really into Star Wars, which is a little strange to me. I'm but trying to be. We're coming up to the end of what's called the, the Skywalker saga, right? So all of the main sequence, right? Episode four, five, and six was the original trilogy. Episode one, two, and three was the prequel trilogy. And now we're in episode seven, eight, and uh, nine is coming out in like a week and a half or something like that. And, you know, everybody has their favorite movie and everybody has their least favorite movie. But I'm denying The Last Jedi, which was the last uh, mainline or main saga movie that came out. I watched it again last night with Ashley to kind of get ready for this next movie to come out. Man, that is a bad movie. Like when it first (laughs) came out, I thought it was pretty good. Like I enjoyed it. But I think it was just the hype. Man, that movie dragged. And it was so bad. Uh, yeah, I mean, spoilers, like, it's like they, they took everything in, I mean, that Star Wars has never really been much of a respecter for the laws of physics, but, like, a good portion of this movie is this slow, slow, dragged out, like, space chase scene, right? Have you seen The Last Jedi? Yeah, I have. Yeah, and so there, there's the, the First Order, which is, like, the big bad guys, they're shooting at the cruisers, the rebel cruisers, or the resistant cruisers up front. But the, the, the bullets or the laser blasts, whatever they are, are actually arcing through space like they're shooting cannonballs. There would be no reason or no mechanism for those to arc through space. So, like, there was the first thing, and, like, there's one scene where the guy is like, well, they're lighter and faster than us. You're in space. 
Nothing is lighter or or not lighter in space. Like there's no such thing as lighter in space. So there was that. It was just bad storyline. I mean, some of the, the the dialogue was so cheesy. So yeah, I, I'm really hopeful that this next one, Rise of Skywalker, is gonna redeem the whole thing. Uh, I'm a little nervous that they're gonna destroy my childhood. Um, but yeah, so I'm denying <laughs> wow. the Last Jedi. It was it was a really <laughs> terrible movie. That made me laugh so hard because we we entered that whole denial thing, and then there was just this amazing defeat in your voice, and yeah. it all started with, "So the Star Wars universe." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I haven't started the Mandalorian yet. I'm pretty excited to get started. I heard it's amazing, but yeah, th- that that movie was just bad. It was really disappointing, and Luke's character was kind of like. I don't know. He was annoying. It was like they tried to make him like a human version of Yoda, kind of like cranky and crotchety. And he just came off as like annoyed and angry all the time. Like instead of being like a crotchety old teacher, he was just like a crotchety old guy yelling, get off my lawn most of the movie. Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. I've been trying to understand the whole Star Wars universe thing as best I can, having only had kind of like a cursory introduction in it. Like I've seen, um, I think maybe all of the movies actually I haven't seen some of the ones that are tangents. Like I haven't seen rogue one. Yeah. But I know that's not necessarily critical to the whole arc of the series. I mean, it is, and it isn't. It's rogue one. Rogue one was a phenomenal <laughs> movie, but the problem with rogue well, one, the problem with rogue one is that, you know, all of the characters like right, right. All of and, and the same thing with Solo. I didn't actually see all of Solo. I slept through most of it at the beach while you guys were watching it. But like, there's no dramatic tension in those movies because the main of characters course. of the movie in Rogue One, since you've never heard of them and they're apparently war heroes, like you know they're gonna die, and like the inciting conflict of getting the Death Star plans, like you know they get them because they have them at the beginning right. of New Hope. So it's like all of the dramatic tension and like the what's going to happen, all of that is gone. So as great as as Rogue One was, it still was kind of a little bit of a letdown. And Solo was well, already are... not a great movie, and then it was it had all of that as well. Just, yeah, it's true. I mean, that's why those are interesting tests of storytelling, because mm-hmm. you know they have to be microcosmic. They have to create their own tension right. and own really like captivating energy and story in themselves because you're right. You're watching that. And you're like, well, I'm not worried about the characters per se, yeah. because obviously these guys are going to die and these ones are going to persist. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a little bit nervous because the next Marvel movie that's supposed to come out is black widow. And, um, it happens between Marvel civil war and infinity war. So at the end of civil war, black widow has to kind of go on the run and she goes in hiding and then she's just back at infinity war. So this movie fills in the gap of like what happened during that time. But again, like as, as many dangerous situations as she might be in or whatever, like the main threat is, it can't be that big of a deal because there's like no impact and no consequence that we know of for infinity war. She obviously doesn't die cause she's alive in infinity war. And on top of that, it's like, it's like character building for a character that's now dead in the MCU. So what do we even care if she's like the story? Like, what does it really matter? So yeah, we'll see. I'm a little nervous about it, but I think it's going to be good. That was like a really good denial and also kind of a weird, depressing denial. Yeah. I know we're talking about fiction and storytelling, but still, 
that was the that was the best opening I've heard so far. The, <laughs> so the Star Wars universe, yeah. like so many places that could have gone, and the just the defeat and the sourness in your voice was yeah. so palpable that that just made me laugh so hard. It did. What about you? What are you denying? Are you familiar with Clever Hans? Mm-mm. Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay, so I, I had a Clever Hans experience. A couple of weeks ago. And so let me give you the denial up front and give you a little bit of quick backstory. I'm really denying against cognitive bias and how I just think that's such a profound result of sin and our own sinful nature and how everybody just has latent hubris that we don't even recognize. And that's why it's so dangerous. So in the 1900s, like the, I think around the turn of the century, there was this horse named Clever Hans who could do math. He was owned by this dude, William von Austin, and the dude was like a mathematics teacher. He was like an amateur horse trainer, and he actually taught his horse, or he said he taught his horse to be able to add, subtract, multiply, divide, work with fractions, tell time. I think keep track of a calendar and some other like weird things, something with some stuff with like music too. And so basically what he would do is he trained the horse. He would either give him a problem verbally or write it out. And then the horse would stomp his hoof until he arrived at the answer. So if you gave him the question four plus three, he would stomp seven times. And so here's the crazy thing about this story is it wasn't a scam. At least like the, the owner wasn't trying to defraud anybody and but here's what's interesting of course this horse got like tons of notoriety because he was actually doing this stuff he would go in front of crowds that give him problems he would stomp out the answers and he would get them mostly correct like an obnoxious percentage he would get correct and so there was a formal investigation done and what they found out was that basically the horse was responding directly to the involuntary cues and the body language of the trainer and the trainer his owner didn't even know he was doing this that's crazy and so yeah, it's just, he actually, as I understand it in the story, the owner was like devastated to learn that the horse actually like couldn't tell time That's and funny. didn't know how to do multiplication. And so it's just this like amazing story of like wanting to see what you want to see and yeah. thinking that you know what you think you know, or thinking that you understand what you think you understand. So how this relates to me, my own Clever Hans experience was I've been going for runs in the morning and uh, because it's crazy dark in the morning. And so I've been trying to get ready for these runs in the most respectful way I can with my wife, which is using like as little light as possible. And because I guess I'm a running nerd, I have these socks. People who run know about this. There are socks that running companies make that are like, you know, better suited and they're tailoring toward running. They have some unique features. One of those is structural. And so there's usually a left and a right sock. Right. I know that sounds crazy, but there's actually a left and a right sock. And so in the mornings, I have to pay attention to like which sock I'm putting on. And so I just grab a sock and I try by like what little light exists in this room to just like see if I can read on the printing which one it is. And so for the last several weeks, I've been going, you know, a couple times a week. I grab one sock of the two. I have the 50% chance of getting it right. And I keep getting, I was noticing, I kept getting the left sock. And I was like, wow. I'm pretty good at this. <laughs> or like, well, I was more like, what are the chances? Like, obviously, I know statistically speaking, it's a 50% chance, but they're all independent probabilities. So if you flip a coin, you could get a string of five heads in a row. It wouldn't mean you're awesome at it. It just means that they're all independent. And so in the long run, they'll regress back to some kind of average. But representative in a small sample, you could get a long string. So I'm like, I'm getting a long string of left-handed socks every morning. <laughs> this is just kind of cool. Like I'm just getting into it. Not again, because I think I have like skill in choosing just because it was a really fun observation. So I'm folding laundry 
later, or uh, I guess this past week. And I notice uh, my wife says to me, make sure you put your socks in your drawer and my socks in mine. We have the same running socks. And I was like, <laughs> oh, I didn't even know that. I was like, how can I tell which socks are which? And she's like, well, your socks have an L on them for large. That's how you'll know that they're yours. So this whole time. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Wasn't actually. So all this to say, like, I'm just denying against how easily, like, I, and, and that you find this among, like, people that are into, like, behavioral science, behavioral economics and finance. Like, they'll say, I know all the things. Like, I've done the studies. I've written the books. I won the Nobel Prize in some cases on you know, these behavioral cognitive biases. And yet I still fall prey to them. And I'm just like, man, sin is so pervasive. Like we can't turn that portion off. And so I'm denying against cognitive biases this week. That's pretty funny. So wait, so wait, the the socks do have left and right, but they're not labeled with an L for left. Yeah. It's they're labeled in a totally different way. I was just reading the tops of them and that was the size and not the footedness. That's awesome. But but you still were yeah. getting the left sock though, right? Because you were putting it on your left no. foot and oh, it was no. still the right I was sock. Just, <laughs> well, that's maybe another type of bias that I can die against. I think because in my mind I thought I had chosen the right you one. You were ignoring they felt that they like felt they were wrong. Right. Okay. They were definitely not. Yeah, they were definitely not right. So it w- I'm telling you, bias everywhere. That's amazing. I think that's amazing. Get it out of here. Get it out of here. Get it out of here. So what about affirmations? Turn us around on this. Yeah, so I I picked up a new book. Um, I I don't know that I would recommend buying this book because for some reason this tiny uh, 100-page book that looks like a, uh, if you look at it, it looks like a little composition notebook. For some reason, it's like $58. But I don't know exactly how, but I stumbled on it for $10. It's called On Being Reformed, and it's a set of essays. Um, a couple of the names you'd recognize would be Chris Coggy from the uh, Glory Cloud podcast and R. Scott Clark yes. from Being R. Scott Clark. And yes. essentially, it is a series of four essays on the question of what it means to be reformed. So uh, Chris Coggy and uh, Crawford Gribbins kind of take a sort of skeptical approach on even being able to define what it means to be reformed. And then there's a couple uh, essays. One is uh, an essay by Matthew Bingham about Reformed Baptists and whether or not that's a useful term and it's an, a, it's an act like a effectively describing something real term. There's a, an essay by D.G. Hart uh, called Baptists Are Different, which I have not uh, I have not read yet. <laughs> but I, love that I think title. it probably has to do more with uh, the idea that. Baptists aren't reformed because D.G. Hart, I think, probably is taking that position. And then there's a a response by R. R. Scott Clark to uh, the first two essays, uh, which he's going to take the position of reformed. uh, Reformed has a very particular, defined, definite historical meaning. And, you know, I've only read the first essay, but it was really good. And and it made the point that... um, it's kind of hard to explain in full, but the basic point he was making is those people in our modern era who want to tightly deform, uh, define the word reformed in accord with 
the reform confessions have a bit of a dilemma that they have to face because most of the people in the 20th century who would define reformed that way, according to like the Westminster Confession, they're actually affirming the Westminster Confession in a way that the original authors of the Westminster Confession would not recognize as confessional because they've they've right. changed the context in terms of church state relations and and that kind of stuff. So he's making the definition that we, we need to think or the, the argument that we need to think a little bit outside of just saying like, well, this document is what it means to be reformed, which I think that there's definitely an element of needing to tie yourself to some sort of historic confession. But he's kind of making the point that like there's the reformed confessions in the 16th and 17th century. And then there's kind of this hereditary lineage that comes down out of that of other confessions and confessional traditions that draw their ancestry to the Westminster Confession. And he would include like the the London Baptist Confession as part of that ancestry. So he's saying we right. need to define a little broader. So it's a really good book. I mean, I'm not sure at this point which part of the discussion I land on where, you know, who I think is the most compelling because I've only read the first one. But um, like I said, it, it's ridiculously expensive for some reasons to try to snag it on a bargain uh, or get it at your local theological library. But it's very good. I'm very impressed by it. That's my affirmation. That sounds great. I actually, it's, it's really a kind of a, almost eclectic mix of some really interesting topics. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's something that as reformed people, we all need to wrestle with a little bit of what, what do we even mean by that? So some people would say like, well, it means to be covenantal. Well, the early reformed confessions don't have a fully developed covenantal theology. I mean, there's the seeds of covenant theology are there, but in terms of an actual expressed articulation of covenant theology, we don't really get that in a full form until the later confessions, really like the Westminster Confession or the Irish Articles, maybe, um, Scott's Confession a little bit, maybe. So we, we really need to, to wrestle through that and think through it. I think it's just a good conversation to have. Yeah, that's a wonderful, that's the kind of thing you should get together with some people and have to do like a little mini book club on because you're getting, you're moving through a bunch of different topics, but super interesting. And I love that title, like Baptists are different. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. But again, don't buy it at full price. Even our Scott Clark, who uh, said he doesn't make any money off of it, said don't buy it at full price. For some reason, it's really expensive. I think it's because it's a British imprint. So you're probably paying some to actually get it over here. And it's not like it's a, a, this isn't please anyone who is one of those authors that might hear this. Don't take this the wrong way. It's not a significant enough of a book to be like mass printed in the U S. So when you buy it, I think you're actually probably paying in part the, the extra cost it takes to get a UK book published in the U S but it's great. It's called on being Re- reformed. It's published by Pelgrave pilot press. Uh, it's very good. I would thought you were going to say that our scart clocks like his, his actual blurb on the back was, please don't pay full price for this book. Yeah. He did say that on the, on the Heidelcast though. So what about Close you? Enough. That's great. What are you affirming? I'm so glad that you picked a book because I got an affirmation that is something we both use. I'm doubling down on because we've talked about it before and you can take that book that you've affirmed and then apply it to the affirmation, which I'm about to drop. And that is I'm coming back again to goodreads.com, <laughs> which I think is just an amazing 
fun resource for connecting with people and for tracking reading. So for anybody who's unfamiliar, goodreads.com is just a place basically where you can go and log both your progress through books that you are reading and you can log all the books that you have read. It's also a great place. I find myself going here a lot now when I want a decent recommendation for a book or better yet, I want to see what people have said about a book, whether I want, I'm weighing something out and I trying to decide whether or not I actually want to read it and invest the time. So it's kind of like social media feed for like your books. Like if you'll connect with other people and then you'll get to see what they're reading and how they're progressing through the works. And I just think this is a really fun way to interact with people. I love it when I see people that I know reading books I've read, or oftentimes I'll see somebody is reading a book and I think I want to read that. I would have never come across that, but I definitely want to read it. And something that's just popped into my feed. I think the last thing that's really awesome about this is it allows you to create what they call like all these shelves, which are basically just like categories for books that you've read. So I think right now I have like three or four shelves, like one for finance, one for mathematics, one for fiction, one for theology. And if you're like me, sometimes you come across somebody and they'll be like, oh, is there a book you can recommend in this particular area? Or what's like the best book you've read recently on this topic? This, having goodreads.com, keep all this information is so useful because it's like keeping track of everything I've read and then I can jump into it real quick and find the list of things that I'd never be able to remember that I thought, oh yeah, that's good. Because even like the books that you think are so meaningful, I, when I go back through my list, sometimes I'm like, oh yeah, that book was awesome. I totally, I haven't thought about that book in forever. And so to have it here where you can rate them, catalog them and keep like your own little organized library, especially for references and resources is super sweet. So I, you use it. What do you think of it? You know, I, I really like the website, although I don't use the website all that much, like per se. Um, what I really like about it is I use uh, an app for my iPad called Leo, L-E-I-O. And what Leo does is it syncs up with my uh, with my Goodreads shelf and automatically updates my progress. But I can use Leo as the interface and it like I use the timer, tracks how long I read and how many pages I read and then helps me to project how quickly I can get through any given book. So Goodreads itself is a really great resource, but there's also all these other apps and different things that tie in, hook into Goodreads that really makes it even more useful. For example, I can tell you that Jordan Cooper, who has a Lutheran podcast, uh, gave Justification by Michael Horton, Volume 1, four stars. He liked it, apparently. There you go. So, yeah, I think it's great. I mean, I, I don't use it as, like, religiously as some people do. Have you ever heard of a BookTube channel? Do you know what that is? No. What is that? BookTube is, like, a it's this new corner of YouTube that it's not new. It's new to me. But it's, like, this this weird, like, super niche corner of YouTube of people that do, like, video book reviews. And it's interesting because they have their own, like, language and their own, just like any other, like, informal organization but they also have their own like particular kinds of drama as well so i'm actually thinking about maybe starting a booktube channel but you can you can really like a lot of the same kind of stuff that you can get on goodreads as far as recommendations if you get a good booktube channel you can get that too most of them are really like absorbed with like modern fiction so i don't i've never seen a good theological booktube channel so there's like a, a market for it there yeah, filling in the gap. Uh, yeah, I'm with you. I think that we are super book nerds because we're talking about somehow kind of basically taking and appropriating the YouTube real estate space to just talk more about books. And I love every part of that. I would yep. get down with that yeah. every day of the week and twice on the Lord's Day. 
we are well in case anybody was not aware we're super book nerds so i think this is like a great time to affirm goodreads because if you're thinking about getting your reading calendar set up for next year which i realize those combination of words is super nerdy in and of itself but if you're like me and you're thinking ahead it's this is the great time so i it also i think if you're looking for a little bit of kind encouragement and reinforcement for reading it's also great because it helps you kind of track the progress of your books it's like yeah. a digital bookmark in many ways yep. And that can be something that's very satisfying. And if you're a Kindle reader, it automatically integrates with Kindle so that you can just throw your book bookmark in your Kindle book or publish to the website and we'll just automatically update the website with where it's you're true. at in the book. So it's just a really fun compliment. And I think that if you're like me and you have a library of books, like at least in your mind, theoretically, that you've read, this is a great way to catalog, cat, catalog, catalog, I'm a reader I like it. to catalog them. <laughs> And then to be able to like share that when you need to and when you want to. So enough said, go check out Goodreads. Come find us on Goodreads. Look us up and connect with us so that we can get a growing network of brothers and sisters who are reading good stuff. Because I love to see what you're reading when it pops up. It's, you know, always some like crazy systematic theology book. And I love it. It's true. I have right now, I think I'm reading five different systematic theology books concurrently. Well, four and one of them I'm listening to on audiobook. We should go. Can you pull up your stuff right now and, and say what you're reading? Because it will show you. Well, there's some stuff that I'm reading that isn't synced to Goodreads because, like, I'm reading part of a book. But uh, let's see. See all. Uh, I'm reading The Feasts of Repentance, which is a, um, a book in the new, new Studies in Biblical Theology series by IVP. Return to Me, which okay. is in that same series, The Economy of the Covenants Between God and Man, which is with Hermian, Herman, Hermian, Herman Witsius, uh, Reform Preaching by yes. Joel Beakey, Reform Dogmatics by um, Gerhardus Voss, Basics of Biblical Greek, Fourth Edition by William Mounts, Justification by Mike Horton, Systematic Theology by Robert Lethem, <laughs> Systematic Theology by John Frame, Institutes of the Christian Religion, and On Being Reformed. Uh, previously referenced. What See, do you got? I love it. See, it only sounds like it was hyperbolic, but nope, that, this is actually what's happening. Is yeah. there systematic theology all up and down your list? Yeah. All right, I've got five right now. And here, <laughs> talk about like a random, random list here. This is almost embarrassing. So I'm going back and reading Getting Things Done, The Art of Stress-Free Productivity. That's by David Allen, that famous book. I'm reading The Pastor in Prayer by Spurgeon. Set Your Voice Free by Roger Love, Reform Preaching, which we have in common by Joel Beakey, and then CFA Program Curriculum 2019 Level 1, Volume 4, Corporate Finance and Portfolio Management. So <laughs> that's my list right now. Nice. <laughs> nice. Speaking, Come check us out. Speaking of social networking, can I uh, throw in a little plug for something new that we're doing? Of course. So as many people know... Uh, by the time this comes out, the news will have broke. Uh, I was uh, uh, I was formerly an admin in the Reform Pub, but I have since stepped down from my admining responsibilities. Uh, life just gets busy, and sometimes there's too much going on. You have to cut something out. But I have restarted the Reform Brotherhood Facebook group. So everybody oh, yeah. in the sound of my voice, except Jesse, who doesn't do social media, except Goodreads, apparently, should go join... <laughs> <laughs> the Reform Brotherhood Facebook group, because uh, I don't I'm not I'm not like planning on growing this to some enormous size. That's not the goal. But, you know, as we've gone through this journey now, we're at 165 episodes. 
we are uh, we've got people on just about every continent who listen to our our show. We've got all this different stuff going on. It makes sense for us now to have kind of a centralized hub outside of the podcast for people to chat and talk right. about what's going on and to connect with each other, to share ideas, to share struggles, to pray about things together. So check it out. Uh, you can go on Facebook and just search the Reformed Brotherhood and you'll find both the page, which you should like, and the group, which you should join. Wow, that was a beautiful interjection. I try. Okay, well, let's do this. I saw, here's a bit of a challenge, I guess. Like, maybe this would be about, the goal would be around, like, brothers and sisters joining, like, the volume of people, or I'll leave it up to you. Like, maybe there's something else. What can we set as a goal that would, like, make me jump into Facebook and oh. join and do this? Oh, my. Um, what, I don't what know. should it take to get me to join this group? Let's to join our own podcast group? Two, 200 members by January? <laughs> Does that seem realistic? Okay. I mean, that right, that's I, like a third of our listener base joining the group. All right. I, listen, I'm in. So right. I'm committing. Timestamp. I'm totally in if we can get 200 people by end of January. Oh, I was just saying by January. If you want to say end of January, that's like a, that's like a lock. Serious? Okay, well, let's make it a stretch goal then. So by like the end of this year? Yeah. By, by January 1st, 200, 200 people in the Facebook group. And Jesse will join okay. Facebook. Yep, that's how it goes. I'm, I'm gonna totally go. I, your... I'm gonna go create 199 Facebook uh, <laughs> profiles. I'll be right back. Seriously though, uh, check it out. We'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. There actually will be because I care about us meeting this goal. Because I have been trying to get Jesse to join Facebook for real for years. <laughs> so none of this, none of this fake lurker profiles either, Jesse. <laughs> I, f I feel like I've made a horrible mistake. <laughs> it's all right. You can just like have a Facebook and not use it. That's that's a thing too. Uh, well, speaking of the like the opposite of horrible mistakes. So the Bible. Yes. Let's talk about the Bible. The, let's talk about the Bible. And we're back into Micah again. I'm loving this series. We're making our way through the book. We just rounded out chapter four, and we're about to get into chapter five. And man, it's almost like providence is an actual thing and that God holds all time and uses all of that for his glory and his power, even in silly little podcasts. It's almost like yes, that's a thing. It's true. Although um, we may have to like indefinitely postpone this because you're not allowed to talk about certain passages in December. That's true. Factually correct. Yeah, it's, a it's law. true. It's a law that you're not allowed to talk about Christmas passages in December. It's true. It's true. Just kidding. You can talk about whatever passage whenever you want, <laughs> even in December. <laughs> There's no law. We tricked you. Okay. Apparently, in this particular cast, I'm just finding, like, <laughs> you're, you're very, like, sharp-witted sense of humor and, like, all the sarcasm, like, insanely funny. Like, I love that you had to clarify. You're like, no, actually, just kidding. It's just, it's just a joke. Yeah. We went back and forth and said it's true four or five times. And wanted to clarify, it is really a joke. It's true. We did actually talk about that when we talked about the directory <laughs> of public worship, that preachers can preach on whatever they want in accordance with Christian wisdom. Preachers got to preach. Preachers got to preach. So, Jesse, do you have that text in front of you? Why don't you go ahead and read? We're going to we're gonna do a little overlap, I guess. So you're going to read 5, 1 through, what did we decide, through 9? It's like a big chunk. Yeah, but how about we... How about we hit just the first five to start out with? All right, let's do it. Go ahead. 
Okay, so here's Micah beginning chapter 5, verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. I feel like we need to get like Handel's Messiah going on up in here. Oh, it's coming. I, I'm already it. hearing that. I don't know if that's what you're talking about. But I it's feel definitely like I can hear that anytime. <laughs> well done. Yes. So this this passage, of course, is like the the big mama of all Christmas prophecies, right? So this this passage is the one that's read. Uh, you know, this is the passage that sends the wise men to to Bethlehem to find the Christ child, right? So when when the wise men or the magi, whoever these mysterious figures from the east are. They end up in Herod's court because where else do you go to find a king except to the palace? And they say, right. where's, where's the Christ? Where's the one whose star rose and guided us here? And the Israelite priests at the, of the day knew enough about the scripture to be able to say, well, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. And this passage is why. And so, you know, there's, there's a lot of different things going on in the book of Micah. There's uh, temporal judgment and temporal redemption and salvation. And then now there's, there's the coming Messiah, which has its own sort of form of temporal blessings that come with it. And then there's, then there's the eternal reality that that Messiah brings into play. And this is one of the things you have to understand about the prophets. We've talked about it a little bit before, but it's this phenomenon called, uh, prophetic telescoping. And the idea right. is that the, the prophet sometimes sees or is revealed different events that may be separated by hundreds or even thousands of years of time, but he sees them like, like overlapping mountain ranges where it's hard to tell the difference. And so, you know, muster your troops, O daughter of troops, the siege is laid against us. Well, that's probably referring to a, a vision he's, he's seeing or a prophecy he's being delivered an oracle he's giving uh, of the immediate siege of Jerusalem, which would happen within the next 50 years, right? Within the next 40 or 50 years. But then all of a sudden we flash forward from Micah's point of view, and we're, we're jumping forward 700 years into the future, 600 years in the future. And then all of a sudden we're jumping forward again to he shall be their peace. And now we're probably talking about eschatological realities. So we're not only right. jumping forward 700 years from the perspective of Micah, but we're jumping forward at least another two. 2000 years from the perspective of Micah, because we're in the sitting here in the year 2019 and still the reality of Christ being the peace of the nations has not come to be. So we have to understand that phenomena that not everything that happens in close proximity in the, the prophetic books is necessarily happening temporally in close proximity. Right. That's well said. I, th I think this idea of telescoping is so important because when we consider that the scriptures are the power of God, that these are in fact the words of God, God's specific 
communication to us in this written form that we should expect that if he is who he says he is, if he is purely authoritative, if he has sovereign control over all things, then what we see here is this brilliancy in some respects of him revealing that power and that control by way of taking something that's happening in a contemporary sense and not not impounding it or giving it meaning that it doesn't necessarily have, but using one context to communicate a larger context. And in doing that, it shows that he is glorious. Right. Because who else can do this thing? Who else can at the same time provide this telescoping vision that is both relevant in the contemporary mindset, but also is so relevant in parts of time that are yet to exist there is only one who can do that, and it is God. So it's almost as if it makes perfect sense on multiple levels. And this is where I think as well, this is a great passage that we read, but also because it is the scripture again, it reads us as well. Yeah. And what I mean by that is in the sense that, you know, like Paul says, you're sensible people, read the Bible and see if you do not see here the prophecy of the Christ and the fulfillment thereof. And so here's one of those passages where, of course, in the Christmas season, people uniquely want to go to because appropriately so, it is both demonstrating the power of God and his ability to address a particular situation and then to use that particular situation to also display his power in showing that he's in control of all things and through types will bring, will bring Jesus Christ into the fray to be the peace, to be the strength, to be the messianic king. That is, it's just brilliant because I'm seeing like, Everything that the people wanted here, everything that people have always wanted is Jesus. Yeah. And so here is the scripture drawing us to that yet again. Yeah. And, you know, let's let's dig into this specifically a little bit. So we commented last week that in verse one, uh, it talks about how that with the rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. And the commentators I've read are a little bit a little bit divided on this, whether that whether that's basically saying like the the, the rulers of Israel during the time of going into the exile are going to be struck on the cheek or whether that's a, a right. reference to the imputed judgment that Christ receives on the cross. I tend to go with the latter. Um, some people go with the former. I don't know that the, the two necessarily conflict with each other. The rulers of Israel, even the really bad rulers of Israel were a type of Christ in that they, they sat on David's throne. Exactly. And so so they still prefigured Christ, even if they were unrighteous rulers who were, were receiving the guilt of their unrighteousness. But then we jump in here, and this, this is one of those passages that I think, you know, we hear at Christmas time, we hear just, most of the time, you know, when this is read, it's read as part of maybe like an advent candle lighting or it's a, a reading on Christmas Eve or it's 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 kind of in the background. I don't know that I've ever heard a sermon preached on this passage, right? Most of the time during Advent people are preaching on the the songs of Christmas or the you know the different people that are coming or some you know there's there's all these different kinds of series. I don't know that I've ever heard a sermon preached on this. But there's such great amazing Christology that reveals not only where the Messiah would be born, but the fact that the Messiah who would be born is pre-existent, right? So verse yes, two, exactly. you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, right? So this is a this is the part we usually look at. This is the part that tells us where Messiah is going to be born. But then it says, from you, Bethlehem, shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So some commentators look at this and say, well, 
This is just saying that, like, this is a prophecy that had already been prophesied before. So, like, his coming forth had been foretold from ancient days. But I think the text is actually actually more talking about the fact that the one who is born in Bethlehem, who comes forth from Bethlehem, is actually coming forth from out of eternity, right? So he's, he's stepping right. into time out of eternity. He's coming forth from ancient of days, and he is the one who is coming forth from old. So there's this beautiful statement of the fact that this Messiah who would be born is actually, at the very least, is not, a, not an ordinary human person. You could, yes. and some people do make the argument that it's, it would be possible to read this as some sort of angel who, who simply had this existence that was prior to being born in Bethlehem. But in reality, this ancient days, that's a phrase that means Yahweh, right? That's the phrase right. that indicates we're not talking about an angel. We're not talking about some powerful, pre, you know, old being. We're talking about the ancient of days. He's coming forth from the ancient of days. He's coming forth from the father. He's coming forth from of old. So there's this statement in here that is so clear that you almost have to try to miss it, I think. Yes, exactly. That's what I mean. It's it, to be sensible people is to see what this says on the face, because some actually would even translate ancient days as from the days of eternity. So there's definitely a sense here. Right. I think actually that Micah clearly understands that the ruler's origin long predates his anticipated future coming. And there's definitely a more than human figure in view here. I, I don't think it's just merely like a recapitulation or a repetition of some kind of previous or you know prophecy that he would have understood or heard. I think this is a unique delivering of a message to him and that he is understanding and grasping exactly what it is that he's writing with respect to from eternity past. Here comes this Messiah. It's the one who predates all of us who is in existence since the beginning of the world and before then as well. So let me quote because you brought this up and it's great. This is right on, I think. Let me read like Isaiah 9 and I'm going to, it's a little bit long. So it's verses two through seven, but this is like the quintessential you'll find embedded in the midst of this is the passage going to be immediately familiar to everybody's ears. But Isaiah nine, beginning in verse two reads like this, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampering warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Yeah. So what I always think that's hilarious about this passage in a, in not in a ha ha way, but in an ironic kind of way is, you know, I've never gotten a Christmas card. That was like, you know, happy holidays. And the verse quoted is for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumor and every garment rolled in blood will yeah. be burned as fuel for the fire. Yeah. Even though that is the preceding verse for the for unto us a child is born. So two things jump out at this on me like based on what you just said. The first is that even in this amazing Christology, because it is the child is born, the son is given. It's not the other way around. 
So I think you have the same understanding from Micah here that there is a child born, a son is given. The son is given because he preexisted. He was never just born. And the second thing is that there is something embedded in this, that the coming of Christ is that coming in a sense of a sword of the division. It is the beginning and it is the prerequisite of the judgment in the sense that what you say about Jesus is what you say about everything. Yeah. And so I think even Micah is saying that too, like embedded in what he's pronouncing in this prophecy is this Messiah, this Messianic king is going to be equipped for his work of ruling with the power of Yahweh. And in fact, like his, his whole rule will be an actual manifestation of God's revealed character. Like in the Old Testament, you have the temple and there's so much talk. If you look back in the Old Testament, when the temple's being built as a shadow representation of God's name, it's all about building a temple for my name, showing the glory of my name. And here you have Jesus Christ, who is that real representative and not just the name of God, but God himself. And he's coming to bring the peace, but it's a special kind of peace. It is the peace for his children which results in a reunification, and he talks about that later, but this bringing together, a, a bringing and unifying together of the soul that was divided and harmed and destroyed through sin yeah. is now reunited by God because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross. But there is also violence awaiting. There is this tramping warrior. There is this battle tumult that's waiting for everybody else. And so I think that the there's like this this bitter hard edge, if you will, I think to the incarnation with respect to the fact that when God comes in power, he comes in power. Yeah. And so that power is resulting both in a a amazing amount of pure unadulterated love and obedience, but as a result of that love and obedience, because of the simplicity of God, there is also judgment. Yeah. And I think that we often miss that in looking at this passage. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it says here in verse three, therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. So, so this, this imagery of like a woman in birth pangs, right? Paul picks up on that. Uh, That's picked up on in revelations with the woman who gives birth in the desert and the dragon tries to eat the baby. Like that imagery of this woman in birth pains is the imagery of God's people travailing in exile, travailing in in tribulation until the time when when Christ redeems all of the reality. So so he gives up. He gives them up. He gives up the people until the time of of the the birth of this woman who's in labor. And then the rest of his brothers, the rest of the the Messiah's brothers will come back in. Right. So so we have we've now moved from in the beginning of this passage. We move from uh, the historical time frame that Micah is in to now we've gone past where Christ is born. And now we're moving towards the eschatology here and here in verse four. And this is just. This is one of those passages that when you read it and you really get your head around what it is, you almost have to like push your Bible back a little bit and sit back and just take a deep breath and, and sigh in contentment. It says, and, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. Right. Again, now we've got this beautiful Christology that not only is the not only is the Messiah going to be coming forth from the ancient of days, but he's going to be worshiping God. You can't have those two things be working if we don't have the hypostatic union. And then it says, and this is the part that just makes you want to sigh with contentment. And they shall dwell secure. Like there are no more beautiful words in all of the Bible than that. They shall dwell secure. It's just amazing. And here's here's what Calvin has to say. And Calvin's a smart dude, but he's not always super poetic. But I think that this is, is a fairly poetic way for him to say it. 
Uh, this is out of his commentary on Micah. He says, he shall feed in the power of Jehovah and the majesty of the name of Jehovah. That is, as much power as there is in God, so much protection will there be in Christ whenever it will be necessary to defend and protect the church against her enemies. Right and then on. he goes on to say, and he says, why? Because we have a king sufficiently powerful who has undertaken to defend us and to whose protection the father has committed us. So not only, not only do we have the son who is God and who is strong and capable of protecting us as much power as there is in God, that's how much power there is in Christ for us, right? That power is now power for us. But on top of that, the father has promised the son and has committed our protection to the son. So part of the obligation that the son, and th this is, this is some like top shelf Trinitarian theology. Part of the promise that the father has made to the son is that once the son has completed his task, he will be given a people who have been prepared and made spotless for him as a bride. But what right. the son has to do, the, the obligation the son bears in the covenant of redemption, in the pactum salutis, the obligation he bears is to protect those people with his very life. The life of God was laid down to protect you and to protect me from the forces of darkness. If you can't find right. assurance and contentment and security, if you can't dwell secure in that, I don't know what you can dwell secure in. And we have to think about the method by which that surety was conceived and accomplished. Because yeah. what strikes me in this passage is that no human mind could conceive or invent the gospel. It's just so alien and otherworldly, especially with respect to the fact that here's this king of glory and he comes in unassuming power. So the way that he is accomplishing all this is by, it's, it's a quiet power, it's a strength, but it comes not in the way that we would expect it to be. And so that reference again, like to Bethlehem and Ephrathah being small, I mean, that those two terms literally mean the house of bread or fruitful. So here is the bread of life. He's being born in this small place. And the origin was insignificant because it's not even referenced like in the list of cities yeah. that Judah takes in, in Joshua 15, it's just not even referenced there. So it, it's really this, such a small, unassuming way. And this, I think is what strikes me of how our King of glory works, that when he comes in and regenerates the heart, it's almost like he does it in such a gentle and surprising way. There is a winsome and gentleness with which he does it, but the power, the transformation of the change is so radical that it seems almost juxtaposed to the way in which he does it. In other words, I don't know that God necessarily runs in and just tramples all over everybody's heart, so to speak, yeah. and wins it over. It is this wooing, but it is not the wooing of a frustrated lover because whom God woos, he always saves. Yeah. So, there is in this sense, if I'm making, like, if this makes sense to you, like this, I see this wonderful juxtaposition that I wouldn't expect of here is God coming in power, but he comes as the baby. He comes as a nursing babe. He comes to the teenagers being born from his, this mother, Mary. He comes and of course is born in a stable and he goes, he's born in this small, really insignificant, like backwards for lack of a better way to say it place. And of all the places in the world where we'd expect the King of Glory to come, 
wherever we expect him to manifest his glory by way of trampling over every power structure. We just don't see it. We see it in the inward being. We see it in the heart and in the spiritual condition because that's where the real battle needs to be fought. And so that's why I'm continually encouraged when I hear testimonies, when I consider and reflect on my own life, when I see and look at, for instance, the words in the life of Paul. This is how we know God is powerful because I think one of the hardest, perhaps the most difficult thing in the world to turn around is the human heart. It yeah. is the mind that is natural and is predisposed to fight against God. It's the clenched fist that is in every one of us. And so here is this king of glory, gentle coming as a babe with power though. And so this is the blood that will be spilled that will eventually dissolve our fear in his blood. Come and bring liberation and come and bring this peace. And like the word used for peace here that we talked about before, this prince of peace is not peace that exists in the lack of strong circumstance or distress. It's actually the peace that exists in the midst of that kind of thing. And even that is a quiet peace. We see Jesus himself exercising in this quiet contentment and reliance on God, the father. And so there's, I, I don't know, like within this, I just see so much mystery. I see so much beauty because there are things I cannot comprehend, but my mind and tongue are just on the edge. I think of so, of so many times of seeing, wow, like just being mystified. Does any of that make sense? Or am I just, at this point, I think I'm just like completely rambling to myself. No, I mean, I think it makes sense. I mean, this is one of those passages that you have to really, it, it, you know, it's like a good wine. Like you have to slow down and taste all the different notes in it. Like you have to, you have to take a drink and just hold it in your mouth for a little while to let everything ruminate. And, and this passage, I mean, you could write an entire theological treatise about the hypostatic union just in this passage, right? Sure. So, so even that in itself theologically is amazing. And then you talk about all the implications of it. And so, so Calvin goes into some of these, right? He says in a word, and he's talking about uh, the fact that the, the, the Messiah here receives power from the Lord. Like, let's just talk about that for a second, right? We, we sometimes are so quick to think about Jesus as operating in his own power. But we, I mean, right. we've been, we've, I think we've done four or five episodes now where we've talked about like, Jesus isn't a superhero. Jesus isn't Superman, right? He, he is a, doesn't have the ability in his own self, in his own person to just turn on his divine power whenever he wants. Right. Right. So the power he receives, the miracles that he do, does, he does so by dependence on the father in the power of the Holy Spirit. And right here is where it says it, right? He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. The power he receives is from the Lord and in the majesty in the name of the Lord is God. And here's what, Cal here's what Calvin says. In, in a word, the prophet means that God is not to be viewed by the faithful except through the intervening mediator. And he means also that the mediator is not to be viewed except as one who receives supreme power from God himself and who is armed with om omnipotence to preserve his people. But here's, here's the kicker, right? The omnipotence that he is armed with, he received from the Father. Right. So, so we're talking about the God man, the human Christ, who's receiving omnipotence from the father to accomplish all things and chiefly to accomplish our salvation. And, you know, I was reading in Voss this morning and he picks up the same thing in his Christological section. And he talks about basically how, in, you know, in, in the, the reality of the mediator, um, we have to always 
once Christ takes on flesh, we no longer can consider him to be God in abstract. We now must only think of him as the mediator, as the God man, right? Not just God, not just man, but as the God man. And, right. and that's something that I think we really miss. Like, I don't even think about that very often, that it's so easy for us to sort of slip back into this docetic Christology where we lose sight of the fact that the power that the son has received, the power that the son executes as the God man is power that he's received from the Holy Spirit. We very quickly flip back into this idea that Christ is just God with a flesh suit. And he, you know, he knows things because he's God. He does things because he's God. He is things because he's God. But in reality, all that Christ is and does for us as the mediator, he does in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think right. that, that that's where it comes in here is that this passage is a beautiful Trinitarian passage about our redemption in that it's the power of the Lord, the power of Yahweh, which comes from the father by the spirit that the, the Messiah can be the shepherd of his flock, but he couldn't be the shepherd of his flock if he wasn't also man. So right in this passage, we have the, the, not just, you know, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Great. It's a Christmas passage about the incarnation, but it's not just this sort of surface level Christmas passage about the incarnation. There's an entire theology of the hypostatic union packed into these five verses that I, I have never seen or talked about this verse in that context before. I actually think about this a lot. And especially at this time of year, because sometimes, and I don't mean any disrespect by this, a lot of sermons, they focus on the low hanging fruit here, which is this idea of God with us. Right. In many respects, God has always been with us. Right. There is a special way in which he makes himself to dwell with us in this physical sense, as you just described it. But here's what blows me away about that and where I think we often kind of leave it there and we forget to take it up and run a bit more with the idea. And that is, there is a permanency in this God man. Like right. that's what blows me away. Yeah. It would be enough if there was kind of this just temporary encasement of flesh and he can come and be the God man and be like us and be perfectly obedient. And of course, cover our sin by that perfect obedience, earning what we could not earn for ourselves. That would be enough. But the fact that Jesus dies is raised from the dead by the power of God through the Holy Spirit and then bodily ascends, eyelashes, arm hair, yeah. like teeth, to be in the presence of the Father as the perfect human being and stands in identity with me even right now as a human being, as the God-man, blows me away. That's like, I think, such an extraordinary gift of God that he would forever identify with his creation in that way, not temporarily. Like this is just unparalleled in any kind of worldview and any kind of religious system. And I think the reason why it's unparalleled and extreme is no human mind could conceive or invent the gospel. And so what we're seeing here is the real work of the only one who could do this kind of work and bring it to pass. And that is God himself. So it's just amazing. Like I wish I had better words, but there are no good words to describe, I think, how much God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, we're, we're definitely not going to get to the rest of this passage because there's, there's so much here and we're already out of time. But it, again, I mean, I just keep going back to that. Like this is a passage that you just have to chew on. You have yes. to chew on it. You have to go back to your sources. You have to look at what the, the fathers of the faith in various generations have said about this passage. And at the end of the day, what we have to realize, and this is, this is what blows my mind is when the the Jews of Christ's day, they, they knew these scriptures, 
right? They knew enough about the scriptures to, to rightly predict and say, well, Messiah's going to be born in Bethlehem. They went straight there and found him. Like it wasn't as though they had to go look around, right? Sometimes we sort of think about like, oh, the star, you know, the star formed this like spotlight on the ground and they just walked to where the spotlight was. That's probably not what the text is saying. Like they came to Herod's palace because the star had guided them to Israel and the, the star rested over the house in a, in a general sense. But that, I mean, that there's Bethlehem wasn't that big, but there's a lot of houses. Like there's more than one right. house, but they knew to go to Bethlehem because the scriptures foretold it. And here's, here's where I'm going with that is that even though this is plain as day, clear as day in scripture, Right. Herod knew enough to go to the scriptures and find where the Messiah was to be born and rightfully predict and understand where he was to be born. Yet the power of the scriptures had not transformed him and saved him such that he still then committed uh, infanticide. Right. So we have to come to the scriptures. We have to chew on it. And most importantly of all, we have to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal it to us. Because looking at this passage yes. and being able to use our intellect to say, yeah, incarnation, hypostatic union, Trinity, yeah, it's all there. That's not enough. We have to let the spirit or we have to ask the spirit, we have to beg the spirit to illuminate this to us. And here's the best part. He wants to do that. He wants to give us that good gift. He's already purposed to give us that good gift. And the birth of Messiah was in part to be able to give us the gift of the revelation and illumination of the Holy Spirit because he lives in us. Right, right. Yeah, let me say one more thing that just really came to my mind as you said that, and that is one of the things we should remember as we celebrate this time of year is that when Jesus draws near, of course, nothing remains the same, but there's always a great stirring up. There's yeah. a stirring in our hearts, there's a stirring up in our circumstances, and we see that demonstrated in his life over and over again, but there is almost a violence, a violence of the heart that is warring against the spirit A violence sometimes in our world because there is a, a profound rejection of Christ, a trying to cover up his identity, a trying to defeat him. And so even as a babe, we see that because what Harold, Herod tries to attempt in trying to destroy Christ is it's almost like everywhere he goes, there is this kind of response. Yeah. And so it's no different in our own world as the Holy spirit works in our lives. I think we will struggle with this profoundly because when Jesus draws near, everything gets turned inside out and upside down. I love this idea of that. Like I said before, there's so many people that have beautiful testimonies of being through very difficult times and struggles and God has rescued from those things. But my story is not quite that one. It's more one of a sense that God has rescued me and saved me. And now all my life is just trying to recover from that. I'm still trying yeah. to recover from that. And every day as God is good to me by revealing through the power of the Holy Spirit, what it means to live rightly and holy, to have a purified mind such that my heart is transformed, that it's always war all the time. And I'm just trying, I'm hoping for the day where it'll, it'll wake up and it'll, it'll be easy. But yeah. th that day will only be waking up in glory. And so there's still always this warring and we need this king who is both the prince of peace, the one who holds up the government on his shoulders and the one who has the full power and authority to defeat our enemies. This is the one we need. We need the Messiah that uh, Micah is talking about both in a contemporary sense and this like practical way, but also in an eschatological sense as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good note to end on. Jesse. Tony. <laughs> since we talked about a Christmas passage today. Yes. You know what makes great Christmas presents? 
What? Well, actually, I need some ideas for great Christmas presents. Would you please share? Reformed Brotherhood merchandise makes great Christmas ah, presents. That's, I should have thought about that. That's true. Where would somebody go? This is such a setup. Where would somebody go <laughs> to find the said amazing gifts of the Reformed Brotherhood type? You can check out confessionalwear.com. Uh, there's some awesome Reformed Brotherhood gear. There's some awesome Reformed Pilgrim gear who are uh, a proud part of the Reformed Brotherhood. They're good brothers in the faith. They have a great show. Uh, and you can also pick up some of our uh, gear from podcast experiments like the public domain, uh, confessionalware.com. There's also a bunch of other really cool stuff on the website, too, beyond just our gear. So check it out. If you're looking for uh, a midwinter, no reason gift, uh, you can find it at confessionalware.com. And of course, anything that you purchase on that site that has that beautiful Reformed Brotherhood logo does as well. A small, a small portion of that goes to support the cast here. And of course, we're always appreciative of that. It's true. We would love it. You know, honestly, we would love it if you got some Reformed Brotherhood gear, if you took a picture of it uh, and put it up in the Facebook group. But you have to join the Facebook group first. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So all 200 people that are going to join the Facebook group allegedly before the end of the year and force me to join Facebook, post a picture of yourself wearing some sweet, sweet Reformed Brotherhood paraphernalia. It's true. I have another Photoshop challenge, although this one will be relatively easy. Uh, the, the photo of you with your face photoshopped onto the rock's body, which <laughs> I can confirm is, a, is an accurate representation of your physique. Uh, I would like it if someone would Photoshop that so it looks like not only is Jesse's face on the Rock's body, but Jesse's face on the Rock's body is wearing a Reformed Brotherhood, I guess, <laughs> spandex shirt. I guess it wouldn't be a T-shirt. But if you guys could get on that, I would love it. I would love it. I expect uh, that by Thursday. We should mention that not only do we have fantastic listeners and brothers and sisters, but... I sense that we have like a disproportionate number of listeners who are pretty skilled in Photoshop because the Photoshopping of my head onto various other people is like not corny Photoshopping. Like it's pretty good. Yeah. I showed that picture to mom and she actually was like, you know, uh, if I didn't know Jesse, I could actually believe that was a real photo, <laughs> which was sort of backhanded a little bit. I don't think she meant that that way. <laughs> but uh, it was a good Photoshop. Not the one, the one where it was like him with his like bare chest and chat tattoos. That one wasn't quite as good. I mean, it was a good Photoshop, but not believable. But the one where he's wearing like the tight black T-shirt, I could totally see. You could get jacked like that. I could see. Yeah. That. Well, yeah. The shirtless one was just confusing because I don't have that many tattoos. Otherwise, it would be pretty darn close. It's true. We're gonna get that tattoo at the beach, though. <laughs> the rock tattoo, like our whole left side. It's like a whole, like a pectoral, like Hawaiian type, like tribal. Yeah. I think it's Minoan. Minoan, that's what yeah. it is, yeah. Yeah, like Moana. Yes. Well, well really well done. Really well done. <laughs> the, this has been some like premiere podcasting between like the hypostatic union and a full breakdown of the rocks tattoos. <laughs> really, what more could you want out of a podcast? This is it, people. Also, all the spoilers you could ever ask for with Star Wars. <laughs> didn't we do a whole episode though once where we just did like 45 seconds of straight spoilers we did we did it was an april fool's day episode also didn't you and conrad do like a seven hour episode explaining the force <laughs> there is uh i mean 
technically, maybe there were seven hours of recording that got pared down <laughs> to 30 minutes. But there was, he's an expert on that, so I will defer to him. Yeah, people can go and, and check that out. I'm trying, here's the thing. I like the, I like the Star Wars idea. I, I'm having trouble really wading into and getting my arms around the Marvel Universe thing. I think it's more expensive. I could be wrong about that. People probably are wanting to punch me in the neck right now. No, I think it is. Screaming. I think it is. If you if you look at just the movies, it definitely is. So it's intimidating to me. Star Wars, it, I have an affinity for. Like, you know, everybody grew up watching different things, and I remember watching those things. But I'm also getting, it's almost like, so I know how much you love Star Wars. I know how finely tuned your mind is around that entire story arc. So it's also one of those things where when you see somebody really enjoying it, it makes you also have like a new and profound appreciation for that thing. And so that's part of what's been happening the last several years. I've been like, wow, this really is a really interesting, fun, eclectic and really thoughtful tale. And so I've just been trying to learn more about it and just enjoy the movies. I watched Solo and I thought for like it being a standalone movie, it was just good, clean fun. Like it was a lot of great yeah. Star Wars type fun. And so I think it could, it's, it's stood on its own. But then I remember part of the fun for me was I saw it and then I was asking you like, is that really how he got his name? Like, and you're like, yeah, I don't know. It doesn't. We don't really know. And then I'd be like, <laughs> what about this? You'd be like, yeah, we don't really. That's just part of the. We so didn't it's just know fun to like see that. these things. Yeah. And then talk to people about them. So yeah. that's my plug for Star Wars. All right. Well, there you have it, folks. Jesse's going to join Facebook if we uh, <laughs> we'll get 200 see. members. And he loves Star Wars now. I don't even know who he is anymore. Well, it wasn't that I never loved it. It was that I didn't know enough about it to like really appreciate it. So I'm I'm kind of fanboying it these days. But I think also there's been like a Star Wars resurgence, like since Disney a little took bit, over yeah. that whole bad boy. It's, it's been true. kind of like a coming back. So I, I'm just curious. I would love to like go back and read the books, but I think you and I have talked about this in the past. And apparently that's like a really mixed bag. Like some people feel very strongly about the books. Others feel like it's not proper canon. Some feel like it's some kind of commingling of what's proper and what's not. So oh, it's not. Oh, no, no, no. It's, it's not. Uh, there's no debate about whether it's canon or not. It's absolutely not canon. Oh, really? It's not 100%. canon. I thought. There, so there, really? are, there are some books that have come out since Disney purchased. All right. Well, we'll have to ask Conrad about this, but. There was a bunch of books that were written after the original trilogy came out, before the prequel trilogy came out, that sort of like moved the story on past the original trilogy. And all of those were considered canon until Disney bought the rights to Star Wars. And then what they said is, those are all not canon anymore. So the only thing that was canon were the movies, a handful of like cartoons that had been made, and then anything else that was produced after that. So those are called Star Wars legends. You can think of them kind of like, I mean, they're like the apocrypha of the Bible. They're like fan fiction, basically, of the Star Wars universe. So some of those ideas have worked their way into the movies. But yeah, there's no debate. They're not canon at all, which is lame because some of them are really good stories. I think we should end on this point. This is like, I feel like we coined so many funny and unique sayings in this podcast. Like I noticed we've said the words, it's true about, I don't know, 60 times in this podcast. It's true. I also like the idea of the, that's Jesus. Again, that should be a bumper sticker. But uh, my favorite one from today where I think we should end it is Apocrypha equals fan fiction. (laughs) Also the me, me just yelling. Oh no, it's a hundred percent not canon. Would be like, someone's like, have you heard of the Book of Enoch? And I'd be like, it's 100% not canon. Second Maccabees, 100% not canon.
Uh, I love it. So many applications. I know. Well, Jesse, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.